Hey, this is Coach Freddie here, inspiring people to do things that inspire them, and welcome to the I Have for Revolution, where we'll be discussing the benefits of growing and using industrial hemp for people, planet, and profit. Conversations about the history, legalization, farming, harvesting, processing, building, manufacturing, investing, and how industrial hemp can benefit people's lives, heal the planet, and how it can be used to make thousands of products and boost the economy and business. So, are you ready to join the iHemp revolution? Hey, this is Coach Freddie here. I'm talking with Marcus Greeno. And he is a member of the Menominee Indian Tribe in Wisconsin. He holds a double associate degree in tribal law and sustainable development from the College of Menominee Nation. He's currently a campaign manager of Hempstead Project, H-E-A-R-T, in Wisconsin. Marcus, welcome to the iHemp Revolution. Thank you, Coach Freddie. It's, it's an honor to be on here. You know, we met at the HIA conference there in, in Denver recently, and I also see you have a bachelor's degree, and you work for the United States Congress, and you uh, were the agricultural researcher uh, for the College of Menominee Nation. So, Marcus, can you give us a little bit more background on yourself and the uh, Menominee Indian tribe? Yeah, um, so... Uh, my tribe, the Menominee, have been on the uh, Menominee Indian Reservation since 1848, uh, and that was around the time when Wisconsin became a state. And so um, Menominees, though, have been in Wisconsin for over 10,000 years. Uh, there was an excavation uh, for a highway that happened a few years back, and one of our archaeologists, Menominee archaeologists, went and um, tested the site, and he said that you could date the people back who were there to glacial periods. And so, you know, for me, I'm like, well, that's, you know, it's Menominee's. And when I asked him, you know, is that the Menominee's, he says, oh, yeah, definitely. I saw the pottery. I saw the work that was left there. And I think that, um, you know, that shows a lot of significance because – you know, in this day and age, you know, um, the indigenous voice has been invisible for far too long, and now it's becoming very mainstream, especially what's going on in Standing Rock and, you know, respectively, all the other tribes that are going, that uh, have been facing a lot of issues in their communities all across America. Yeah. And, um, you know, the Menominee, you know, we're, uh, we're people that our staples are wild rice and maple sugar. So uh, in September, um, we harvest all the wild rice we can on the different areas that we that we can on rivers and lakes throughout Wisconsin. And then in the uh, in March, we usually tap the trees, the maple trees, for um, sap, maple sap to make uh, maple sugar. Mm-hmm. But uh, the thing about it, though, is it's been changing. You know, um, our winters have been getting warmer here in Wisconsin, and so. The maple sugar season starts going in uh, end of February, which is kind of funny. And it's also disheartening because, you know, winter is a very vital thing for maple syrup because, you know, the sap will not run 
if um, it's not cold and there's not enough snow that you know hits the ground. You know, if we don't have enough snow accumulation, we have no sap. And I'm, what I'm bringing this up about is, you know, the the issue here is, you know, there is a possibility that the Menominees could lose two staples in their diet: wild rice and maple syrup. And the two biggest things are, you know, uh, climate change, um, the warming of our planet, and also um, mining, mining oil, um, all those different interests that are disrupting the underground. Because once you disrupt the underground, then you're going to affect the water supply. And once you affect the water supply, then you're unable to to make food. And if you're unable to make food, people aren't unable to eat, let alone drink good water. So, you know, that's that's a big thing. And so when you know, the opportunity was presented to me by my tribal leadership um, to help them grow industrial hemp. I was all on board. You know, when the tribe was doing work in um, drafting the law, the tribal law, the tribal ordinance to allow industrial hemp cultivation, you know, I was there at every hearing voicing my support for it. And I was like, you know, I wish someday that we have Menominee youth making, you know, three-piece hemp suits and selling them to Chicago, to Milwaukee, to L.A., to New York. And I think that, you know, that is a beautiful dream, and I I hope that it will become a reality one day, and that, you know, that's kind of where I am in this industry, in this work. And so, um, you know, after we um, made our law legal to grow hemp on the reservation, we uh, the tribe contracted with the College of Nation, they uh, drafted their memorandum of understanding saying that the tribe and the college will work together to uh, look at the academic research as well as the market research involved with growing industrial hemp. And so um, they asked me to come on board to uh, carry out the agricultural aspect of the research while uh, we had consultants as well as my boss um, overseeing the market research and analysis of uh, growing industrial hemp and making it a viable industry for the tribe. And so, um, you know, this is this is funny too because I was also, um, you know, in my junior end of my junior year of my undergrad at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. So, my bachelor's degree that I earned this uh, past spring uh, in May of 2016 is in democracy, environmental justice studies, with a minor in First Nations. So. Um, you know, when the opportunity presented itself to do academic research, you know, on food, food security, I focused on hemp because I know hemp is a very uh, great source of fiber. It's a great source for protein. It has a lot of omega-3s. So that's kind of where I started out in my academic research. Was I, lo- I was looking at the food aspect, but I was also looking at the fiber aspect as well as the medicinal aspect of hemp. And so that's kind of where our project was moving forward as we were looking at all those three different areas. And um, so I, you know, wanted to apply my education to something that, you know, I could use in real life. And I thought that, you know, working on a hemp project and doing academic research was worked hand in hand. You know, it's, it's a, it's going to be a booming industry in America before you know it. You know, it's just a matter of, changing public perception about industrial hemp because everyone's still so, you know, they can't decide whether or not hemp is hemp or hemp is a drug. And, you know, that's 
the unfortunate years of Reagan and Nixon that <laughs> created that um, enigma, as we like to call it. And um, yeah, so that's kind of you know where I am about this. Um, you know, the reason why my tribe picked me to be an agriculture researcher was because um, one, my my family has a background in agriculture. Um, my my grandfather um, had the largest garden on the reservation and was a biodynamic farmer even before biodynamic was a word. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, and, um, and my, uh, my professional work, um, you know, previous to being campaign manager of Hempstead Project Hearts Wisconsin campaign, I was, um, working in Washington, D.C. So, you know, coach, uh, you know, I worked in the Senate when President Obama was inaugurated. So mm-hmm. I was on Capitol Hill the first hundred days that he was in office. So I saw, you know, I helped with American uh, Recovery and Reinvestment Act. I worked on uh, some of the healthcare stuff. I worked on some indigenous uh, issues, environment, uh, green economies. Um, I worked and interned under uh, Senator Debbie Stabenow. She was the uh, chairwoman of the Senate Ag Committee for a little while, and she's still a big player in, in the ag policy world. So um, that was my background in uh, Congress, and then I also worked in the Small Business Administration uh, Office of Native American Affairs, so I uh, wrote a report to Congress on the rural exporting um, in the United States, and they kind of wanted to get an idea of, you know, how many rural businesses there are, and, you know, are they exporting to how many different countries, and so on and so forth, so I kind of put that together as well as all the different programs that are available to people to export as well as start businesses. And um, it's surprising how many things that once you start digging coach into, you know, the Department of Commerce, the Department of the Economic Development um, Authority, uh, Department of Agriculture, and the Small Business Administration, there are so many tools that people can use to um, become entrepreneurs. Um, and I think that, you know, having all that knowledge, um, I think the tribe saw me as a um, you know as a really good advisor to help them create a new agricultural business and so you know that's kind of where my background um, kind of I think got me into the job so. Wow yeah that's that's fascinating so now where's your uh, reservation located at so um, our reservation the Menominee Indian reservation is in central Wisconsin um, for you know anybody that wants to know what it looks like, all you have to do is go on Google Earth and type in Manami Indian Reservation, and it's a green, funny-looking rectangle that you can see from space. I mean, you know, it's it's unbelievable, and that's because of our sustainable um, sustainable development philosophy. I mean, we've we've had a sustainable forest that's been going around since Wisconsin, before Wisconsin was a state. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, we have a sustainable yield. Uh, we have a mill. And so that's kind of um, where the Menominees kind of get their recognition, international recognition from, is their forest and how, um, you know, sustainable forestry is viable, it is successful, and it can be replicated. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that's where our reservation is located in central Wisconsin. We had a little discussion when you had mentioned indigenous people and how you were doing your research. So I thought that was fascinating. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and how you actually did your research when you were growing the hemp? 
when I was I was working for the tribe um, in another capacity a few years back as a, um, a research assistant, and we were looking at trying to develop a culturally based education curriculum for the schools on our reservation. And so during that time, I was really um, inspired and motivated by a man by the name of Dr. Gregory Cajete. And he wrote this book called um, Native Science, Laws of Interdependence. He also um, wrote numerous other books too. Uh, one is called Look to the Mountain. Another one's called Igniting the Sparkle. But Native Science is probably one of the, the best books I've ever uh, read. And he uh, he talked about this whole idea that in our day and age, um, a lot of research that has been carried out is very linear. There's not really an aspect of holistic um, framework in any research, really. Um, so I really took that, and I've been kind of applying that to my life ever since I read that, you know. And I think when I was on the hemp field, I kind of wanted to have an indigenous perspective in the research. And so um, I used a lot of observation, but I also used this framework of um, the five senses. So, you know, um, smell, touch, feel, taste, and see, you know. And I was um, looking at it, and... What I noticed about the hemp is it was very resilient. Um, and what I mean by that is we had a lot of hailstorms. We had a lot of, we had a tornado that came through. It didn't hit the hemp field, but it was like five miles away, you know? So those winds were coming. And, uh, what I noticed in the hemp field was there's this one hemp plant that I was, um, I, I, I specifically marked it because it was so fascinating was that the stalk of it broke and it like literally split right down the middle of the stalk so it was like on the ground but yet the branches of the hemp plant were growing so it kind of the hemp branches kind of became the stalk so you have all these like little individual stalks trying to grow and trying to hit that sunlight and i was just like wow like that hemp plant is so resilient like i kind of felt very uncommon with that hemp plant because you know indigenous people are very resilient as well so you know it was kind of like a, um, a, a symbiotic relationship that me and the hemp plants are kind of having out there and uh, you know some of the um, research that we did you know like I would view what animals would come in you know in the morning you know I'd look and see what kind of animal tracks would come through and we had we had a bear come through there we had deer we always had deer coming through and um you know, we had an eagle, we had turkeys, you know, like, it was, so it was interesting to see, you know, the animals mm -hmm. come and view and see what was going on, because I'm sure that they've crossed that prairie numerous times, but then now they had this huge <laughs> field of hemp there, and, you know, I bet it was really fascinating to those, those animals. I mean, you know, I, I wish I could talk to animals, but, <laughs> you know, it doesn't really, that can't really happen, you know, per se. Well, um, we, we can, you know, communicate with them in different ways, though. For the, sure. Yeah. For sure. Definitely. Definitely. You know, I think that, you know, this indigenous perspective is so, so important, so vital, because there are so many destructive industries that we have in, in the world today. You know, we got the oil industry, we got the gas industry, we got mining, and, you know, I think the hemp industry is so in line with indigenous values because, you know, as I look at it, like, you know, the hemp industry is kind of, you know, an economic driver for the next seven generations. I mean, 
you know, just thinking about what we can make out of hemp and the jobs we can create out of hemp, you know, is phenomenal. I think it's one of the most promising industries I've ever seen. And I wish that, you know, it was never outlawed in 19, you know, 37 and then didn't go into effect till 1957 here in Wisconsin. So, you know, we have 59, 60 years of re-education that we need to do and research and, you know, we need to know more about it. I mean, you know, the rest of the world, I think I I saw like 28 other countries um, that are growing hemp. And it's oh, yeah. Like, man, yeah. man, we're so far behind and we we shouldn't be, you know. Um, I think some of the best minds, you know, come to America to, you know, go to the schools. And, you know, I, I talk to my friends who are at Cornell and at Harvard and at Brown and they have international friends. So you know that, you know, there's something about America and American um, innovation, mm-hmm. creativity. Yeah. I think that, you know, and I've seen it, you know, and I think you've seen it too, Coach, at oh, yeah. these conferences we go to. You know, you see the company, the Green um, green Technologies, I believe they're called, that make the uh, 3D pen. Oh, uh, yeah, made out of yeah I, I have one. I just, yeah, did a, I, I just did a yeah. podcast with him the other day. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, like... Yeah. Um, Mark. His name is Marker also. It's phenomenal. I, I think that's so cool because, you know, once we can start creating other um, products that are biodegradable, you know, I think that, you know, hemp is going to finally see its day in, you know, the golden age of agriculture. Oh, yes. It, it's coming and it's coming uh, a lot faster than people think. So, yeah. Def- definitely. Yeah. So, uh, Marcus, you know, what segment of the hemp industry do you get most excited about? I think some of the um, things that really inspire me is some of the work that was going on um, before hemp was outlawed, like Henry Ford and how he built his car out of hemp and Mm -hmm. could run it on hemp fuel. I think, you know, those... You know, and seeing the BMW company making, uh, you know, some of their uh, yeah, the panels. door panels, mm-hmm. their door panels out of hemp, and then you know, seeing Hemp Industries Association make a a, a hemp briefcase. I thought that was the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life was a hemp briefcase. You know, yeah. um, that's one industry is the plastics industry. I think that hemp would be phenomenal in the plastic industry. I also think that you know, hemp um, and the fiber of hemp and the uh, building and trades industry too is yeah. you know so great cuz you know um i i think the first time you and i met coach was at john patterson's uh hempcrete workshop in fort collins yeah. back in march last year and you know it was really cool to see that hempcrete you, know, you can't burn it you know and so it's you know fire resistant it's you know pest resistant and um not only that like it sucks in co2 and I mm-hmm. thought that was so cool to see because I'm like, wow, why aren't we making hemp houses so that we can solve this climate issue and this greenhouse gas emissions issue? Because, you know, whether, you know, whether people are all like, oh, well, you know, climate change is not man-made or climate change has been going on for centuries. And granted, there is tribal uh, stories of climate change happening, but at the same time, you have to understand that we're at 400 parts per million and gaining more and more and we have to address this issue like there has to happen otherwise 
you know, we, we could say goodbye to the oceans. We could say goodbye to life as we know it. So, you know, when it comes to finding solutions, I really think hemp in the plastics industry as well as mm-hmm. in the building industry, the construction industry, those are some of the things that I'm really looking forward to seeing. Okay. So what is one thing that has you most fired up about hemp? I think one of the things that has really gotten me fired up about hemp is, you know, the whole thing about, you know, seeing, you know, Alex Whiteplume get raided and then seeing, you know, the tribe, the Monami tribe get raided uh, mm-hmm. on their hemp crop. But yet, you know, you have universities in, you know, Kentucky, Colorado, and all these other different states that are growing hemp aren't getting raided. You know, and, you know, people will be like, oh, well, you know, uh, you know, they've gotten their seeds from, you know, across uh, state, you know, across across the ocean in Europe, or, you know, they they've worked with their state departments of agriculture, and that's why, you know, they're authorized to do that. And it's like, well, you know, tribes are sovereign nations. People, mm-hmm. you know, don't understand that. I mean, if you look at um, President Reagan. He um, put out a statement on Indian policy when he was still the president, and he was staying—he was stating that, you know, the government has always been the biggest barrier to tribes creating economic development. And I think that's so spot on, especially coming from Reagan. And oh, then, yeah, yeah. you know, he never really passed an executive order, or he never, you know, pushed for legislation in Congress to, you know, fix that issue. But he did address it in that policy that he wrote. And then, you know, you look at President Clinton and he made an executive order when he was still president that said the feds and tribes should always have a government to government relationship and that they should always be, um, you know, coordinating ideas, projects on a government to government relationship. And that's something that I haven't really seen in either of those cases is that, you know, the feds are saying, okay, we're cool with you having hemp, you know, like, but you can't sell it. You can't, you know, uh, give it away. You have to burn it. You know, that's the thing that was written in our, our tribal law that we passed was that, you know, we would burn the hemp crop after we were done with our agricultural research. Or if, you know, we found out that THC was detected over the legal limit, we would have burned those crops. And yet, you know, the feds are still Mm -hmm. wasting money you know, authorizing these raids on tribal land. So I, I get really fired up about that in particular. Okay. And um, now you were raided uh, just last year, right? Yeah, yeah. Actually, so can, uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, funny thing about it is, coach is like on Sunday is the anniversary of the one year raid on the hemp field on Menominee, and Whoa. so yeah, that's a big thing. And um, you know, it's funny because I was just on the, the hemp field, or at least what the field, where the hemp field was, uh, this past weekend with the hemp uh, road trip. You know, Rick Trojan came out and uh, yeah. we went and walked the grounds, and you know, it was it was just so disheartening because you know the tribe had a really um, were really banking on that hemp project to help them out because we're we're one of the mo- we're one of the most poorest tribes in Wisconsin. I'm not going to say we take the bait on being the most tri- poorest tribe in America, but we are one of the poorest tribes in Wisconsin. And 
we were looking at hemp as something that could help us, you know, um, build more infrastructure on our reservation, create jobs, mm-hmm. um, help us with our healthcare costs, you know, cause our, you know, we have a, we have a hospital, um, on our reservation. We have a clinic. I shouldn't say we have a hospital because we don't have emergency room services. So if someone gets sick or someone, um, has life threatening issues, they have to get carted away on an ambulance 15 minutes off the reservation to get to the nearest ICU, you know? But if we had hemp as an economic driver, that wouldn't happen. Mm-hmm. You know, we would have we would have all the necessary, you know, basic needs that every human being needs is healthcare. You know, mm-hmm. and I think if we had that opportunity, you know, hemp would have created that. So, you know, getting back to this whole thing about what happened um, last year, you know, um, you know, so I think we were talking a little bit about before the podcast and that, you know. The tribe opened a dialogue with the feds in March of 2015, and that dialogue was going back and forth up until the raid. So it wasn't like we weren't saying we're not going to talk to the feds. We wanted to have an open dialogue with the department, with the um, drug enforcement agency, on starting a hemp project on the reservation. And it's funny because you know I was doing um, a little bit of digging last night and just kind of condensing some facts on the um, document that the Congressional Research Service put out in February of 2015. And they said that one of the biggest barriers is trying to deal with the DEA trying to get a permit because the DEA, the DEA doesn't give permits out like just car blanche. You know, <laughs> it's very restrictive. And so, you know, my tribal leaders have those emails that correspondence between March of 2015 up until the raid. We have every email. And so I say it was about end of July. um, I was out of town at the time, but what I heard from my tribal leaders was that the feds came in and they wanted to tour the site because they finally, you know, after, you know, after we said, oh, we want to get this legitimate, we want to do all this stuff. And then you know, come July, we finally, like, the, the tribal leaders tell the feds, like, oh, we got a hemp plant. Uh, we have a hemp field planted. And they're all like, oh, my God, we need to come up there right now. And so they came up there. And, you know, at first, um, some of the test plots we were working with, because some areas we weren't really tilling any ground at all. And um, we just planted just to see what it would, you know, if it, it could handle. And the hemp plant, it didn't really cut it. You know, it didn't really grow as... um as bountiful as we thought it would. But then, you know, there was an area that we located on the prairie land that, you know, coach the year before somebody tilled, you know, about three to six acres worth of, (laughs) of soil in that field. And, um, they didn't plant nothing. So, you know, you carry that over another growing season and that, that soil is going to be really nice. And so, uh, we tilled it again and then we planted that hemp crop and boom, you know, we got all these little foot tall hemp plants, you know, there. And, uh, so when the feds came, they saw that, that crop and, you know, there was a lot of strong words exchanged between the tribal leaders and the feds on it, but yet the feds did not take that crop that day. And I'm still kind of wondering like, well, if we were not in compliance with federal law and if we were going against your wishes, 
why didn't you just ask us to take that hemp crop up then? Why did you make us go through all of that labor and costs that was associated with maintaining that hemp crop up until you guys raided us? And, you know, they raided us right at harvest time. Like, we just got hit with a huge frost, and those hemp plants are still going. And I was surprised. I mean, you know, even some of the seeds, you know, some of the seeds looked really well, too. They are you know, right mature, and they took them all. And so when I was out there in the field with Rick this past Sunday, you know, I could see the bulldozer marks of where they brought a bulldozer in and took out all the hemp that was there you know because we were harvesting at that time and at one point the, the tribal leaders they were like stop harvesting the hemp like the feds said we cannot harvest that hemp and so there was like maybe another acre or two left of hemp still standing and they just bulldozed it all so when i was walking through the field i saw the the tracks like you know i'm not kidding around i saw the tracks like they bulldozed and took the hemp plants, they took the soil, and they took the roots, you know? And so mm. they, they, they destroyed that whole symbiotic relationship that we were seeing and we were doing our research on. And um, so when I was out there, like, I didn't, you know, when when the raid happened, I was coming to work that morning, and I was coming over the hill, and as I'm driving over the hill, I see all these agents with their machine guns at their sides, grabbing all the hemp plants that were in the field and it's kind of scary to be honest coach because i'm like wow like what did we do wrong you know like am i a criminal now is are they looking for me you know because i was associated with this project and um you know i was really scared for a moment there because i i just that was it was there was an unknown none of my tribal leaders the funny thing about it was our tribal chief was out of town when they raided us so he was in california um at a national congress of american indian um meeting you know they have them all over the country where all these tribal leaders come together and they talk and you know they collaborate and um you know they carry out economic ventures together and so he was out there doing that and the feds come in and they raid us without you know him there Mm -hmm. you know so it was kind of like okay so probably like the one person that would probably told you guys no and probably would have put an injunction on you is out of town and you go right underneath his nose and steal all those hemp plants because they stole them. Let's be honest here. Like, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I argue with people all the time about, you know, the validity of this hemp project. And, you know, I will always tell people, you know what? People will say that this is a violation of federal law, but really in all actuality, we were creating jobs. We were conducting academic and market research. You know, we were doing some of the same testing um, testing methods as University of Kentucky was doing. You know, so I, I don't see how you know this is a violation of law. Like we're not looking to you know sell this hemp hemp plants so that people could smoke it. We were looking at the viability and the feasibility of creating a business for the tribe mm-hmm. and that's what it was you know and you know i wish that we had the opportunity to continue doing that because you know i still have a license with the tribe for well it's for three years so i was you know i had my license for that one year up until the raid 
And then this past growing season, I could have grown hemp, but I can't because, you know, our tribal leadership um, said that we will not grow hemp until the state of Wisconsin allows hemp to be grown. And um, so, you know, the raid happens and they take everything. Yeah, uh, Yeah, that's that's a shame. Uh, But Marcus, so what is your next step here for you and the tribe? So, um, one of the really unfortunate things about this whole project was that there wasn't really a lot of education around, well, I shouldn't say, there wasn't a robust, uh, way of carrying out educating our, our tribal members. I mean, we had, I think, a five day, um, expo where we had, you know, people in the hemp industry, people in the medical marijuana industry come on our reservation to our casino in our convention center and, you know, talk to, talk to our members about, you know, hemp, medical marijuana, everything. Cause you know, it was a big thing. Cause that whole co-memorandum that was, um, sent out and the Wilkinson memorandums that were sent out by the department of justice regarding, you know, medical marijuana in the United States, as well as, you know, um, cannabis in Indian country and the parameters around having a legal, um, project going and I think you know when it comes to the tribe um, I was really saddened by that decision because I think it would have came down to his money you know we the tribe probably didn't want to spend X number of money to hire an educator to you know have people take tours of the field or you know have um demonstrations of what can be made out of hemp you know that wasn't really done and so you know when right before the hemp um crop was raided i got wind that the feds were going to come in and i uh wrote a letter to uh hempstead project heart um it's a non-profit organization um based in berkeley california underneath it's under the umbrella of the earth island institute so they're all about um building awareness around industrial hemp and making it a um, a major crop to be grown in the United States at some point in our lifetimes. And I, um, one of the people who founded the organization was uh, a guy by the name of John Trudell, and he's a famed poet. He was a, a Native American rights activist at the time. And so I wrote to him and the organization, and I was like, we need your help. We need someone to come here and educate people about the benefits of growing industrial hemp. And, you know, the what it could do for you know in a tribe to become self-sufficient and um they answered my letter and they said that they'll do anything they could to help me and you know um we were working together you know the month leading up to the raid and once the raid happened you know they were upset they they wanted to help us they wanted to do a benefit concert and invite all these uh people from you know national acts from uh, all over the country to come to the reservation to, you know, show people that, you know, hemp is not a drug, that it can become, you know, a viable industry for everybody. Mm-hmm. And um, during that time, um, John Trudell was fighting cancer and he uh, he basically kind of lost his battle. And um, mm. uh, I was, uh, I got an email from his, uh, one of his, um, his co-directors, uh, Faye Brown, that he was uh, going to pass away and that uh, he wanted me to um, 
you know, he wanted to contract me for doing some work with the organization. And so, uh, I asked, uh, Faye if I could, um, fly out to California and see John cause he was in hospice. And, um, you know, John honored my request and I flew out to see him. And, uh, I saw him four days before he died. I was one of the last people to, um, to talk to him. And, uh, you know, <laughs> John has been a, uh, he was my idol. You know, I was 16 when I saw his movie Trudell. And, uh, he wanted, that's the reason why I got into tribal law at the mm-hmm. College of Nation was because of John. And, um, he basically told me he wanted me to build an alliance between natives and non-natives to, um, make hemp legal in the United States so that one day we would see it replace corn as the major crop grown here. And, um, he said that it would start in Wisconsin and um, that Wisconsin has a rich history of hemp and that we had, you know, some of the biggest industry in the, the United States has ever seen in the first half of the 20th century. And so um, I said that I would, I would take the position and I would help and carry out his vision for him. And so uh, that's what I'm doing now. And um, fantastic. You know, yeah, it's a, it's a real honor, coach, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's something that, <laughs> you know, uh, really hits me in the heart. Well, uh, I could, I could hear it also too, so, uh, I commend you for doing that, and, uh, anything that I can do to help out, I will. Okay. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Well, it's a great story, and, uh, Marcus, uh, I want to thank you for being a guest on the IHAMP Revolution. Thank you. I really appreciate it, Coach. I want to thank our listeners for tuning in today. And make sure that you subscribe to the IHAMP Revolution podcast on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. Give us a review and follow us on Facebook.com forward slash IHAMP Revolution. Like us, and then tell your friends. Help us spread the word about how using industrial hemp can benefit people, heal the planet, and provide long-term profit. This is your host, Coach Freddie, inspiring people to do things that inspire them, and thanks for joining the iHemp Revolution.